George Henry Tinker was born on February 25, 1926, in Aurora, Illinois. Aurora, as you know, is the home of Wayne and Garth from the Wayne's World movies and sketches on Saturday Night Live. I have no idea if Mr. Tinker was a fan of Bohemian Rhapsody, but I do know that he received his bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago and later a law degree from Tulane University. He worked in the legal department for Kemper Insurance, eventually becoming associate general counsel and then general counsel for that insurance company in 1978. While working for Kemper, he argued against the adoption of mandatory no-fault auto insurance, even testifying on the subject before the United States Congress. Beyond these career milestones, however, Mr. Tinker accomplished what might be described as the highest milestone for an insurance coverage lawyer. No, not getting a rate increase from the carrier, although that is phenomenal too. No, he achieved what might be the closest thing in insurance land to immortality. What could that possibly be? Let's take a closer look. From St. Louis, Missouri, Nacho Cheese Capital of the World, this is Michael's Insurance Podcast, a podcast where we take a closer look at insurance coverage and bad faith issues. And now a man who personifies business in the front, party in the back, Michael Young. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, we were talking about George Tinker. In the spring of 1975, Mr. Tinker published an article in the FIC Quarterly, a publication put out by the Federation of Insurance Council, or FIC. By the way, at the conclusion of his article, the FIC Quarterly included an advertisement announcing that the 1976 midwinter meeting of the Federation of Insurance Council would be held on February 4 through 8 at the La Costa Hotel in Carlsbad, California. You just know that had to be a rocking good time. Wait a minute. I, I was born about nine months after that meeting. I wonder what that means. I, I don't want to think about that. Let's get back to George Tinker and his writing. The article was entitled, Comprehensive General Liability Insurance, Perspective and Overview. As an aside, thank you so much to the law librarians at St. Louis University School Law for digging up a copy of this article for me. It, it was like impossible to find. Anyway, in his article, Mr. Tinker discussed in great detail all the changes and updates to the then new 1973 revision of the Comprehensive General Liability Policy Form which was a predecessor to the commercial general liability policy form that we all know and love today. In particular, George discussed two of the most basic requirements in the comprehensive general liability policies insuring agreement for coverage for property damage claims, namely that the insured meet the policy's definition of property damage and that the insured show that such damage was caused by an occurrence. With some exceptions, these requirements in the 1973 Comprehensive General Liability Policy form are similar to the requirements in today's commonly used Commercial General Liability forms. And yet, despite decades of similar policy language, 
courts and lawyers still often disagree as to the basic meaning of the occurrence and property damage requirements, particularly in the context of construction defect or faulty workmanship litigation. For example, the definition of occurrence is often defined in these policies to mean an accident. Here's what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court once said in Brenneman v. St. Paul about that occurrence accident requirement. Quote, what is an accident? Everyone knows what an accident is until the word comes up in court. Then it becomes a mysterious phenomenon, and in order to resolve the enigma, witnesses are summoned, experts testify, lawyers argue, treatises are consulted, and even when a conclave of 12 world-knowledgeable individuals agree as to whether a certain set of facts made out an accident, the question may not yet be settled, and it must be reheard in an appellate court. End quote. Damn, 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 damn. The citation for that case, by the way, is 192 A. 2nd, 745, if you want to print that one out and frame it on your wall. I know I have. Given this confusion, what can we make of the occurrence and property damage requirements in the context of construction defect or faulty workmanship litigation? I thought I would bring on an expert to explain this issue from the policyholder perspective. My name is Seth Landon. I'm a policyholder coverage attorney. I've focused my practice for the last 20 years on representing and counseling policyholders uh, in connection with insurance issues. I'm a partner with the Blank Rome firm, and I work out of their Chicago office. Seth, you and I uh, co-authored a article many years ago for the Illinois Defense Council on coverage for construction defect defect claims. It seems like it's been 100 years. Do you remember that? I, I remember it very well. And, and one of the things that stuck out, and you know, it's, I, I've known you for a long time, and what I'm always sort of uh, interested in the fact that you and I tend to see eye to eye on a lot more issues than we don't in terms of, of insurance issues. I think that you and I both sort of play it straight up the middle in terms of what's covered and what isn't. So I, I remember that was a really interesting collaboration. And, and frankly, working with you, I learned a lot about Illinois defective construction law, even though you're a, a Missouri-based attorney. So I, I remember that one very well. Yeah, you know, and, you know, one of the topics that came up in, in that article and that we've talked about generally is, you know, are construction defect claims covered by CGL policies? Should they be covered by CGL policies? You know, what would you say to that? Well, you know, I, I guess let's take a step back and, and first define, you know, when we're talking about construction defect claims, what we're talking about. And so so in my practice, I tend to represent uh, general contractors more than subcontractors and, and, and developers as well. So I should just frame this as, as I'm, I'm um, coming at this a lot from the general contractor's perspective. But um, putting that aside, you know, when we talk about construction defect claims, what we're really talking about are claims seeking damages from you know, contractors or subcontractors for defects in the in the construction caused by um, faulty workmanship is typically what we're talking about. Um, we talk about construction defect claims, and it, this has been, you know, as you know, this has been a hotly contested issue in the, the construction world and the insurance world probably going on two decades now. Actually, I think more than that, some of these first rows in, in the 90s, sort of like 
you know, the asbestos litigation, the coverage litigation, uh, environmental coverage litigation. And courts have really, you know, they've diverged in a couple of ways. The answer to your question, in my mind, is a lot of the claims at least brought against GCs are covered by the plain language of the, the CGL policy. And let me walk through it a little bit and sort of explain to you where I'm coming from, and then we can talk about um, you know, how some of the courts have looked at these concepts. So um, when I when I think about coverage for you know these so-called construction defect claims, I do what I do for all my clients. I pull out the, the policy. And so the coverage I'm talking about right now, it's really going to be the ISO CGL 0001 um, form. You know, it, it, some of the material provisions that you and I are going to be talking about today haven't changed in shoot, since the, the mid 80s. Um, you know, there have been changes to the form, but not um, the relevant provisions in my mind to, to coverage for construction defects. So, you know, you and I can talk a little bit later about industry specific endorsements that, you know, might provide some clarity on coverage for construction defects, et cetera. But I'm really just talking about the language right now of the, you know, the unendorsed ISO form. By a plain reading of the ISO CG0001 form, um, I think many of these construction defect claims are covered. Um, you know, certainly for purposes of a duty to defend, you know, are they potentially covered? You know, let's start with the insuring agreement. So, you know, paraphrasing these coverages, but but pretty close. Um, you know, the, the ISO policy form covers liability for damages for property damage caused by an occurrence. So there's a few concepts that are buried in that. <clears throat> there's the question of damages, and that's you know, pretty straightforward. We're talking about, you know, monetary compensation for a wrong, I guess. That's usually not controversial in the in the construction defect world. But the two battleground issues, I think, are, are property damage and caused by an occurrence. Now, the sort of good news is the policy defines both of those terms. I, I can't say that courts and insurers and practitioners are in agreement about those definitions, about how they work, but there are very straightforward definitions in the policy. So let's start with property damage. Physical injury to tangible property doesn't get more straightforward than that in my mind. Physical injury, um, you know, let's just say some material alteration to the property, any type. I, I don't think it makes a difference. It could be on a molecular level. It could be a catastrophic loss. We're just talking about physical injury, plain language. Tangible property is also pretty straightforward. Tangible property, you know, something you can touch, something that you can... Um, Sense, I think, is really, you know, I don't want to talk about issues. <laughs> you, you and I can talk about some of the esoteric issues on the edges are, you know, is data tangible property, sir? But that, that is no relevance to, to the construction world. Everyone knows in the construction world what's tangible and what isn't. So then the real key is, the, the, the absolute crucial question here is, um, are these claims for property damage, you know, physical injury to tangible property caused by an occurrence? Now, the term occurrence is also defined in the policy. There's a couple of different uh, definitions, I guess you could say. One is an accident. And then the other is, this is also an occurrence, repeated exposure to substantially the same general harmful conditions or, or something along those lines. So let's go back to the, the interpretive principle that, that controls what you and I do, at least the initial one, which is um, we have to apply the plain language meaning of these terms. So let's do that. Let's incorporate those definitions into the insuring agreement. 
So, you know, the one that I just read through. So the policy covers physical injury to the project, you know, to, uh, or parts of the project. It was, as I view it, unexpected by the insured, an accident, an unintended or unexpected consequence of, of an act. Um, so the, you know, the, the answer to your question is, as I sort of start looking at this is, well, most construction defect claims are going to fall within the scope of the policies insuring agreement. Um, I, I am not going to suggest to you that courts necessarily agree with what I'm saying. I think most do. Um, a su- significant minority don't. We can get to that later. But if we're sticking right now with the plain language of the policy, we are within the insuring agreement. But, you know, of course, then we have to turn the ex- to the exclusions. So in my mind, any liability or potential liability that is property damage caused by an occurrence, it's going to be covered unless an exclusion eliminates that coverage. And while I agree that many courts have adopted the analysis that Seth has described, some courts have gone the other way and held that these coverage requirements are not met in the construction defect context. It's what I guess we would... would describe in the you know, in our world as a, as a results-oriented analysis. And, you know, basically what a lot of these courts say, I mean, I mean you'll hear terms like business risk exclusions. Um, that term doesn't appear in the, the ISO CGL policy or any policies I've ever seen. But courts will sometimes refer to the exclusions I've talked about as business risk exclusions, but then take that analysis or that concept and apply it to the occurrence. Um, and what I mean by that is they will, a lot of these courts will look at you know, these construction defect claims and say there was no occurrence because according to them, you know, the natural and ordinary consequences of faulty work um, is defective construction. And that's not an occurrence because it's the, the natural and um, foreseeable consequences of that. So, what a lot of the courts will say is there's no occurrence. Um, you know, another way that some of these courts look at it, you know, why there's no occurrence is they sort of focus on concepts of intent and, and control. Um, they sort of essentially find, and again, these are not concepts that are in the policy, but essentially find that because contractors have the direct ability to influence the quality of work, <clears throat> whether it's in a supervisory capacity or directly performing the work, you know, a substandard result, defective construction or whatever, is within their control, so it can't be an accident. Um, you know, so in other words, a lot of these courts will find that, that faulty workmanship can't be an occurrence. Um, you know, some saying that defective construction is, I think, as I said, oh, the natural and ordinary consequence of faulty workmanship. You'll see some courts, you know, sort of ruminate, saying that the CGL policy is not intended to be a performance bond. Um, expressing some concern that, you know, I, I think it's really an underwriting issue, not a judicial issue, but, you know, that the appropriate place to look, you know, for this sort of work is, is a performance bond. I, I find this analysis, the idea that an occurrence um, can never encompass faulty workmanship to be troubling, but, but you know, from the perspective of my um, construction company clients, it's viewed often as fraud. Now, maybe, I don't know if it's capital F fraud or lowercase fraud, but um, the idea that, you know, and this, I think it's it's a very commonly held view, the idea that general contractors or subcontractors whose 
the principal risk that they face, other than bodily injury, um, which is usually while the work is, is performing, that being performed, that risk, um, is defective construction occurring after the project is completed. So, you know, as you can imagine, contractors continue, you know, to, to express this, this concern to me that they were sold policies um, by their CGL insurers, knowing that, you know, that the key products completed operations risk is defective construction. But insurance companies have been suing them in declaratory judgment actions for, for decades now, saying that there's no occurrence. So th that and those arguments have gotten traction in the courts. I'm not going to suggest otherwise. In a way, I agree with Seth that these basic CGL forms fail to explicitly state that the policy is not supposed to serve as a warranty or performance bond, at least in terms of the definitions of occurrence and property damage. So where do courts get this notion? Remember my friend George Tinker? Here's what he wrote in his article for FIC Quarterly in 1975. Quote, we often hear underwriters refer to the term business risk as a hazard not intended to be covered under ordinary liability policies. There is no definition of the term in the policies, and there is no single exclusion which removes the hazard from coverage. Yet it is a rather basic concept for underwriting purposes, and there are a number of provisions in the policy which are designed to remove various aspects. It seems worthwhile to dwell a bit on what business risks are and how they are removed from coverage, end quote. Okay, here's where George's article gets really good. Pay attention. He went on to write, quote, It is not the function of the CGL policy to guarantee the technical competence and integrity of business management. The CGL policy does not serve as a performance bond, nor does it serve as a warranty of goods or services. It does not ordinarily contemplate coverage for losses, which are a normal, frequent, or predictable consequence of the business operations. If rates are to be predictable and affordable by the mass of policyholders, the sharing of risk must be substantially limited to those risks which are beyond the effective control of the insured and which are not likely to occur frequently or as a normal and inherent consequence of the business operation. Business risks, then, are those risks which management can and should control or reduced to manageable proportions, risks which management cannot effectively avoid because of the nature of the business operations, and risks which relate to the repair or replacement of faulty worker products. These risks are a normal, foreseeable, and expected incident of doing business and should be reflected in the price of the product or service rather than as a cost of insurance to be shared by others." End quote. Tinker argued at length in his article that the occurrence and property damage requirements were designed to fulfill these basic underwriting principles. Does any of this sound familiar to you? It should, because in cases from New Jersey to Illinois to even, if you can believe it, Missouri, courts often cite this section from Mr. Tinker's article for the proposition that the occurrence or property damage requirements are not met in construction defect or faulty workmanship claims. 
because the CGL policy is not intended to serve as a performance bond or a warranty of goods or services, many courts have concluded under various rationales that faulty workmanship claims cannot be the result of an occurrence or accident or that the claims do not seek recovery for property damage. In a sense, they interpret these policy provisions through the lens of Mr. Tinker's article. What is amazing is that his article did not appear to me anyway to cite other cases or articles in support of his position on this issue. He just said it, and a lot of courts adopted it. That's what I call credibility. Oh, yeah! Thank you, Randy. But the story does not end there. I must point out again that George Tinker's article discussed these issues in terms of the 1973 version of the Comprehensive General Liability Policy. The 1973 policy form had an exclusion, labeled Exclusion O, that removed coverage for, quote, property damage to work performed by or on behalf of the named insured arising out of the work or any portion thereof or out of materials, parts, or equipment furnished in connection therewith, end quote. That exclusion might remind you of the your work exclusion that we see today in modern CGL forms. Mr. Tinker commented in his article that this older exclusion O from the 1973 form generally reflected the, quote, intent to exclude the initial cost of faulty work and the cost of doing it over, end quote. However, he said little else about this exclusion in his writing as he deemed it, quote, not within the scope of this article, end quote. I need to remember that little trick. Interestingly, however, shortly after George's article was published, the insurance industry in 1976 began selling a separate and optional broad-form comprehensive general liability endorsement that modified Exclusion O from the 1973 basic form. I heard it was all the rage at the 1976 midwinter meeting of the Federation of Insurance Council. Carlsbad barely recovered from that one. Anyway, what did this new endorsement do? It replaced exclusion O with a new exclusion that, with respect to the completed operations hazard, removed coverage, quote, to property damage to work performed by the named insured arising out of such work or any portion thereof, or out of such materials or equipment furnished in connection therewith, end quote. So what's the big deal? This is super geeky, but hang in there with me. The exclusion in the 1973 form removed coverage for property damage to work performed by or on behalf of the named insured. The replacement exclusion in the optional 1976 endorsement eliminated coverage in the completed operations context, only for damage to work performed by the named insured, not by or on behalf of the named insured. The thought by many was that by taking the words on behalf of the named insured out of the exclusion, the insurance industry in this optional endorsement was creating a subcontractor exception to exclusion O in the completed operations context. And in fact, when the more modern commercial general liability policy began to be issued in 1986, the new CGL form had a clear subcontractor exclusion to the Your Work exclusion, otherwise known in that form as Exclusion L, which again 
applied for completed operations. Anyone who doesn't think that this is the coolest, I just don't get you. Many policyholders and their lawyers then and now argue that this subcontractor exception to the Your Work exclusion demonstrates an intent on the part of the insurance industry to provide coverage for completed faulty workmanship so long as the defective work was performed by the named insurance contractor. Here is Seth again to explain. Exclusion L eliminates coverage for property damage to the named insured's work arising out of that insured's work. And there is a crucial exception to Exclusion L, which should preserve coverage for a lot of the CD claims that are you know, out there to the extent they're brought by general contractors. And that's this. Exclusion L doesn't apply by its express terms when the work was performed by a subcontractor. And, you know, in the, in, it's very often, I mean, at least in the, you know, for the GCs I do work with, they sub out all the work. Most of it, you know, they're, they're managing the work, they're coordinating it, but they sub out the actual building. So, you know, the, sorry, the building of, of the, the con- performing of the construction work, I should say. Um, so when you put all that together, you know, sort of the plain language, straight up the middle reading, a general contractor should be covered for damage caused by the defective work of the subcontractor. So a, a common argument I think that policyholders make, and, and it sound, it's logically sound to me. Um, I mean, I don't think this is a stretch to say that when evaluating what sorts of losses fall within the insuring agreement, it's sometimes useful to take a look at the exclusions and see what kind of coverage is eliminated. And you know, the way I view it is um, the insuring agreement is incredibly broad in the CGL policy which is why exclusions have to be added in the first instance. And if the insured's work, um, you know, or work performed by an honest behalf could never be an occurrence, you wouldn't need exclusions for your work. You wouldn't need exclusions for, uh, you know, damage to your work, etc. There is an exception to the your work exclusion restoring coverage for work performed by a subcontractor for the for the named insured. So I think that analysis is compelling, which is if what we're talking about, you know, damage to other parts of the project caused by the named insured subcontractor can never be occurrence, it's difficult for me to conceive of how or why that exception, which has been in the policy since the mid-80s, um, why that exception should exist. And so I, so I do think that's compelling that it's restoring coverage for losses that do fall within the insuring agreement. So, with the adoption of a subcontractor exception to exclusion O, and now the Your Work exclusion, George Tinker's article must have had a pretty short shelf life, right? Not so fast, my friend. In many courts, Mr. Tinker's analysis continues to this day, and the reason is that his coverage analysis actually had very little to do with the Your Work exclusion, or 
Exclusion O, as it was called in the 1973 policy form. As I mentioned earlier, he actually wrote that this exclusion was, quote, not within the scope of this article, end quote. Instead, his analysis focused on how the occurrence and property damage requirements actually fulfilled the insurance industry's intent not to provide liability coverage in CGL policies for certain business risks, such as the cost to repair or replace faulty products or workmanship. If the insured cannot prove these essential requirements from the policy's insuring agreement, one never gets to consider the applicability of any exclusions, such as the Your Work exclusion and its subcontractor exception. Now, policyholder counsel Mike Seth might argue that this coverage analysis is unfair, that interpreting the occurrence and property damage requirements in the insuring agreement without considering the Your Work exclusion and its subcontractor exception is somehow improper. But I personally don't think it is. In the Viking Construction versus Liberty Mutual decision, which you can find at 831 Northeast 2nd 1, an Illinois appellate court in 2005 explained what for many courts is really going on here. Quote, The question of whether faulty construction is covered under a CGL policy is generally analyzed under the following approaches, either individually or in combination. Number one, examination of the policy language, including the existence of an occurrence, property damage, or whether an exclusion applies. Number two, application of the business risk, ordinary and natural consequences, or breach of contract doctrine. Or number three, application of the economic loss, no property damage doctrine. The rationale for the second approach is the requirement implicit in every liability insurance policy, specifically that coverage is provided only for fortuitous losses. Illinois has utilized all of the above identified approaches in reaching its overall conclusion that defective construction claims do not fall within the coverage of CGL policies. End quote. You see, courts do not always interpret insurance policy language according to the literal, plain meaning of the terms on the page. What did you say? They may say that they do, but sometimes they do something else. Sometimes they go beyond the written words in the contract and actually consider the purpose behind the insurance policy, what the policy was intended to cover and what it was not intended to cover. And there's nothing evil in that approach to policy interpretation. Almost every state has some support in the case law for interpreting insurance policy language with this more what I call functional approach. Even if not all the courts are as candid as the appellate court in Viking construction was in acknowledging it. And chances are, if a court applies a more functional approach to policy interpretation and takes into account the insurance industry's intent, it is less likely to find coverage under a CGL policy for faulty workmanship claims than a court that applies a more literal, textual approach. This is because the summary of industry intent on CGL coverage for faulty workmanship claims, or the lack thereof, often will be supplied to the court in the form of influential articles, such as Mr. Tinker's, that generally disfavor such coverage. And we see this trend play out over and over again. For example, you can contrast two very different decisions from the New Jersey Supreme Court that reviewed CGL coverage for construction defect claims, 
1979 Weedo versus Stonebrick 81 NJ233 case, which found no coverage, and the 2016 Cypress Point Condominium Association case 143A3273, which found coverage, and see if you think if the differing approaches to policy language interpretation impacted the results in those cases. I would tell you what I think, but New Jersey decisions are, quote, not within the scope of this podcast. Just kidding. The differing policy interpretation approaches totally made a difference, in my view, in those cases. And by the way, remember that Illinois appellate court decision in Viking construction that I mentioned earlier? By its own admission, the court applied a functional approach to policy interpretation and ultimately held that there was no coverage under a CGL policy for a faulty workmanship claim, saying that the policy did not apply to business risk that are the ordinary and natural consequences of a contractor's defective work. And where did that interpretation come from? One of the main cases that Viking Construction cited to in support of its interpretation was the Illinois Appellate Court's earlier 1996 decision in Monticello Insurance Company versus Wilfred's Construction, which can be found at 661 Northeast 2nd 451. And guess whom the Wilfred's Construction Court cited in support of its interpretation? That's right, George Tinker, in his article from the spring 1975 edition of FIC Quarterly. George Tinker passed away in Genoa, Illinois in 2010 at the age of 84. He was certainly not the only person to write about CGL coverage for construction defect claims and appear in court decisions on that topic. Dean Henderson's 1971 article in the Nebraska Law Review entitled Insurance Protection for Products Liability and Completed Operations, What Every Lawyer Should Know, has also obviously been very influential. Both gentlemen and their writings actually also make appearances in those New Jersey cases I mentioned earlier, for example. And there will certainly be many others. But I think in the history of insurance coverage, George Tinker's contribution on the subject of interpreting CGL policy forms has been a little overlooked, even as his ideas in this area have been highly influential. The courts that consider a functional approach to policy interpretation, such as often seen in Illinois, will look to industry intent to help resolve insurance coverage issues. And for construction defect claims, much of that industry intent, even today, comes to us from George's article from way back in 1975. For an insurance coverage lawyer, it doesn't get any better than that. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening to Michael's Insurance Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about me and my insurance coverage and bad faith practice in St. Louis, just check me out at michaelyoungstl.com. That's right. I somehow snagged the rights to that one. michaelyoungstl.com. You can find my contact info, LinkedIn, articles, you know, presentations I have coming up, 
probably I'll post my eBay listings on there. You know, don't knock it. A lot of good stuff. MichaelYoungSTL.com. And also, uh, if you could leave a positive review or subscribe to this podcast as well, it would just mean the world to me. It really would. Thanks so much for listening.